Welcome to the Real Estate Syndication Show. Whether you are a seasoned investor or building a new real estate business, this is the show for you. Whitney Sewell talks to top experts in the business. Our goal is to help you master real estate syndication. And now your host, Whitney Sewell. This is your daily real estate syndication show. And we're introducing some new segments called the Real Estate Syndication Show Highlights, where we are bringing you a look back at episodes focused on a specific topic that we believe added a lot of value to you in your syndication journey. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Also hit the notification bell so you can continue to know when new shows come out. Have a blessed day. Our guest is Danny Randazio. Thanks for being on the show, Danny. Hey, Whitney, thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to be here and help the listeners in any way I can. I'm going to let him give us a little history of how he got into the syndication business. Take it away, Danny. Yeah, thank you, Whitney. I basically got into the business. I was having conversations with my girlfriend, now wife, several years ago, and we were really talking about what we wanted to get for our lives and how do we want to live on a daily basis. We were living in the Bay Area out in San Francisco, California, and looking around and seeing how much time we spent commuting, sitting in traffic, and just the mentality of kind of the work-life balance that didn't quite exist in California or wasn't as common. Everybody would get together and talk about work or how busy they were at work. And it always kind of made me a little confused as to why some of these people didn't enjoy what they were doing and just kind of working to work. And so that conversation kind of shifted our mindset to where we wanted to build a lifestyle that we love. We like to say a lifestyle that we don't need a vacation from. And for us, it's heavily revolved around real estate and having multiple streams of income coming in that we can control. So you know, you work harder, you build more income streams, or you strengthen that stream in terms of the volume that it puts out, you can have control over your financial freedom. And for us, that was very exciting. And that meant real estate and having multiple investment properties that generate cash flow. So that's how we got started. And real estate for me meant kind of the basics. You own an asset, you collect income from it. You need to make sure that the income covers the expenses and covers the debt service and you should have some leftover each month to put into reserves or to put into your pocket, your cash flow. And so at a very kind of basic elementary level, I knew real estate was a path. It was a pretty proven path that many successful top 500 wealthiest individuals in the world use to either create wealth or protect wealth. And so a proven path is something that I can always get on board with. And my wife was on board. So we sold everything off in California, moved to Charleston, South Carolina a couple of years ago, and just immediately started buying properties that fit our criteria. And we got started with commercial investments because the numbers worked a little bit better. The cash flow is a little bit higher and the management is a little bit easier compared to having a portfolio of multiple single family houses, which I think is kind of the traditional way to get started. And from little on, I never really believed in following a traditional path or 
following the steps to go from A to Z, I always kind of learned step A and figured out how to go to maybe G or R and then to get to Z. So being a little unconventional and just really using basic math of income is greater than expenses and there's money left to put in your pocket, it seems like a good deal. Well, doing a million dollars in commercial property in the first years, a pretty big accomplishment, seems like to me. Selling everything you have, moving across the country, you're committed, right? I mean, you were committed to make it happen, especially in doing the two deals. Tell us a little bit about how you had that confidence to go into a million dollars of commercial property in the first year and not taking that traditional path that most people feel like you have to do. It was really about being educated prior to making that first deal. So my life has been built around investing in real estate and buying assets. From early on, I always tracked my own personal income and expenses and had some financial knowledge to calculate cost and how much expenses are and things like that. So I got that level of education and that was able to carry me into being comfortable making that investment purchase. I read books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I read commercial real estate investing books by Dolph DeRoss. I read and listened to several other books and then podcasts. Bigger Pockets was a good podcast that was out. Joe Fairless's Daily Real Estate Podcast. So I was listening to a bunch of those shows, getting different ideas, thinking about what would work for me and my family. And commercial real estate was the path that we needed to follow to achieve the goals that we set out for ourselves. And again, the basic math, income is greater than expenses and debt service. And then there's positive cash flow left at the end of the day. That kind of carried me in to say... I'm comfortable making this million dollar investment decision. It's unchartered waters. I haven't made a commercial purchase before, but I've bought a home. I've rented it. I'm ready to go. I know how it works. And let's just try it and learn as we go. How were you able to get to your wife on board at the time? Was she experienced in real estate at all? No, she really had no background in real estate prior to us moving and kind of selling everything off and going full steam ahead. I got her introduced to some podcasts. And so I think one tip for the listeners is if you and your significant other may have varying opinions of risk or of types of investing methodologies out there, I would say... Don't try to educate them from your perspective. Let others do that work. And so I introduced her to a Bigger Pockets podcast where it was a single female who was an investor and had some similar life experience as my wife did. And she was able to resonate with her message way better than she would resonate with me sitting down and saying, let me walk you through cash on cash return analysis and you know how we factor debt service into our underwriting. I would have lost her at you know cash on cash return analysis. So introduce them to a podcast or a educational forum that they will be receptive to. And at first, my wife, to answer the question, wasn't knowledgeable of it, but she believed in me and took the time to educate herself on the value that real estate can bring. And she was able to 
be extremely supportive very, very quickly. Our guest is Dan Hanford. Thanks for being on the show, Dan. Thanks, Whitney, for having me. I appreciate it. Let's dive in. I know you have some tips for investing passively in multifamily syndication, and let's get started. So I'm going to probably step on a few toes here, Whitney, okay? Uh-oh. Obviously, right now, everybody's you know concerned about some sort of downturn in the economy or some sort of correction that might be coming up. And so I've come up with these three criteria that when you're looking at investing passively with another syndication, these are some things that you should look at. And these three tips are primarily with a multifamily syndication. So if it's a different type of syndication, I would probably say that all three of these would still apply. All three of these little things would still apply, whether it be in multifamily or self-storage or whatever, commercial, all of these would apply. So the first one we're going to talk about, Whitney, is leverage. So for those of you who might not know what that term means, it's how much are you getting as far as a loan is concerned to be able to acquire a particular asset? So, and it's what they call the loan to value ratio, right? The LTV or that loan to value. And so that allows you to determine how much are you willing to take on as debt to be able to acquire this asset. And so in most situations, we try to take on as much debt as we can because the less amount we have to bring to the table, the higher the returns could be. But at the same time, you have to balance that with getting over leveraged or getting too much debt where you can't actually pay your debt service if there is a downturn in the economy. And so one of the things that you have to look at is, is when you're looking at a deal that you're going to invest passively, where is that leverage component? Where does it land? In most situations, I would say you want to stay around 75% or lower. Now, certain situations, when you look at them, depending on the asset, would be okay to go a little bit higher. You know, like if you have an asset that's a much larger asset where you know it's a more stabilized asset, you can look back at the historicals and see that it's not really dipped that much. You could maybe stretch it a little bit and go to that 80% leverage. But I've seen some deals recently, Whitney, that have gone to 85, 86% leverage. And I'm just not comfortable with that kind of leverage on, on these types of assets. And there can be other business plans too, right, that may change this. Or maybe the value, the property, or maybe it's only 50% occupied right now, so the value is really low. But you know, in six months to a year, you're going to be remodeling, you're going to be doing things. And the value is going to be drastically higher in a year's time. And again, I'm not saying that you should never go over 75, but sure. if you're looking to invest passively and you want to stay as conservative as possible, I would say stay below 75. Because yes. to me, my comfort level in investing is with preservation of capital. And so we don't right. require anything that's at 50% occupancy because there is no cash flow. As a matter of fact, at 50% occupancy in almost every asset, you're going to be putting money into that business, into that situation for the first year to two years until you stabilize. And so one of the things that we do is we always buy assets that are cash flowing the day we close on them. That way we're not having to worry about that that 50% occupancy. Now, somebody who goes in and has that stomach for a 50% occupancy, are they going to get a better return if they implement that business plan than me? I would say yes, but you're balancing risk versus reward. So there's a lot higher risk in taking on a 50% occupancy property versus taking on a 90% occupancy property as well. No, I agree completely. I would be, yeah, 75% would be the max usually. Yeah. But most of the time right now, we're trying to get it around about 70%. So give mm-hmm. or take one or two points, you know, 68, 69, 70, 71, somewhere around in there as far as the leverage is concerned, but we can go up to 75 on some of these assets. And of course, 
Some asset classes, depending on some of your lenders, they might not allow you to go past that. Most of your lenders that are going to to allow you to go past that are going to be what are called your bridge lenders, which are the ones that are going to bridge between a permanent agency debt or fixed debt. And they're kind of bridging the gap between you acquiring the property and you being able to get it to a point where you can go into some of that permanent debt. And sometimes that bridge is required because you can't get into an asset when you know with some of this like with our situation with Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac when you don't have at least 90% occupancy for at least 90 days and so you have to start off with a bridge loan first get the asset stabilized and then go into that but even though the bridge lender will give you 80% occupancy 80% leverage you don't always have to take it Gave us one or two questions we should be able to ask a sponsor or a syndicator when we're just concerning the leverage or the debt. Sure. I would ask them what their plan is. You know, say, hey, you know, obviously, hopefully when their presentation, they've given you that plan. But unless there's a, a reason or a story behind why they're getting that much leverage, they need, they need to be able to answer that question of why are you getting an 86% leverage, you know, and are you concerned and what are your contingencies in place? What happens if, let's say it is a 50% occupancy, what happens if the day you close, the market turns and you're in this thing with 86% leverage on a 50% occupancy property, are you going to continue to try to build up and then get that stabilized? What's going to happen? Are you going to be able to do that? So a lot of these things are what ifs and they are speculation. So a lot of t- I don't like to invest in speculation. And that's one of the reasons why I like investing in stabilized assets already is that I'm not hoping that I can get it, to, you know, an increase in occupancy. I'm already at that occupancy level. But you have to ask those questions of what are your contingencies that you have in place if the day we close or six months down the road after we close, the market turns and we're still at 50% occupancy. Yeah. Well, what happens? Yeah. That's the worst thing you can do in a syndication is not a worst thing. I guess it's more you can lose a bunch of people's money. But when you try to do capital calls, that, that definitely you know impacts your investors quite a bit. No doubt. So 75% or lower, and we want to be able to ask them what their business plan is. They should be able to answer that. Why are you going to leverage this much? What's your plan if the market turns? And what's next? The second thing that I would want you to look at is the operating reserves. Because sometimes you look at that and they go, oh, we have one month of operating reserves. And I don't feel like that's sufficient. You know, you need to have more than just one month of operating reserves, three to six to, I mean, as much as you can, the 12 months of operating reserves. And again, a lot of times that, a lot of reasons why some syndication you know, groups don't want to have a lot in operating reserves or they don't put a lot in operating reserves because the more money that they put in operating reserves, is the more money that they have to raise. And the more money that they have to raise, it also reduces the, the returns to the investors. And so they're balancing this whole act of they can increase the internal rate of return to their investors, as well as you know trying to reduce the amount of money that they have to raise, because the more they have to raise, the higher the likelihood that they might not be able to raise that amount. And so you want to make sure that they have enough in operating reserves to be able to withhold and withstand you know a storm if it does come because if you look back in 2008 when the market crashed the properties that were able to hold on throughout that dip are doing or not are they did very well when they exited their properties and then those are the people that had low leverage and had plenty in operating reserves what are you comfortable with you know if i'm a passive investor what's that answer that you're looking for there you know if i say okay you know how much are you all putting in reserves so i know that we can weather that storm yeah. I mean, I think that there has to be an answer that 
gives you a comfortability level of being able to invest in it. So my story that I like to see is I like to see at least three months, sometimes six months. If it's an asset and it's kind of like a tertiary city, you might want a little bit more. You know, so it just depends on the asset, depends on the occupancy that it's currently at. So if you're acquiring a property that has a little bit lower occupancy, you know, 80, 85 percent, you might want to have more in reserves and just in case it drops below that even more. You know, if you have a more stabilized and a growing economy type market, that 95 percent historically for the last several years, you know, you might not need as much in that operating reserve account. But I would say that the more you can have in that operating reserve, the better because it just makes for a lower risk deal. And obviously, the lower the risk, the lower the return. That's just kind of how it works. But I would rather have a little bit lower return, but have a little bit lower risk so I can can practice that swan principle, right? Sleeping well at night. And that's really the biggest thing is, is that in a syndication model, we're taking on outside investors' money. We want to make sure that we can sleep well at night, but also our investors can do the same thing. We hope that you have enjoyed the highlight show today. You can always listen to the full episodes that were featured today by clicking the links in the show notes page in the, in the description box. Let us know in the comments what you thought of this episode, or you can go to lifebridgecapital.com forward slash podcast and click the feedback button. Let us know how we can add more value to you. Thank you and talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show brought to you by LifeBridge Capital. LifeBridge Capital works with investors nationwide to invest in real estate, while also donating 50% of its profits to assist parents who are committing to adoption. LifeBridge Capital, making a difference, one investor and one child at a time. Connect online at www.lifebridgecapital.com for free material and videos to further your success.